flight about a year ago, befriended Pastor Tony and some of the staff here, so it's great to be here. And because last week Ron made fun of the pulpit, I realized when I walked here this morning that even though I've been preaching for uh, young adults and, and college students, that we've never been in a place that had a real pulpit. So I look at this pulpit, I'm like, no, I'm not qualified for a pulpit. So uh, we put it over there. Hopefully that's all right. And, uh, some new guy tearing down the pulpit, you know. It's not what's going on at all. It's just a little more comfortable here. So. But it's great to be with you guys and to be here the first time preaching with you at Cornerstone. And if you've been here for any number of weeks, you know that Pastor Tony has been taking this church from creation to the cross. And we've been going through the entire, from the book of Genesis, all the way up to the life of Jesus and understanding what does the Bible say about what happened, how to understand the Old Testament. Last week, Pastor Ron brought us to the New Covenant, which is the final uh, covenant. We had four prior ones. And so the death of Jesus ratifies this New Covenant. And the blood of Jesus is what sets that New Covenant in place. And so everything changes because of this New Covenant. So that's what I'm going to talk about today is that we can discover what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be the new covenant people of God? Because in the new covenant, not only do we have a new life, we also have a new mission. So I'm going to cover today what is our new life as the new covenant people? What is our mission? How do we accomplish it? If we have time, uh, I'll talk about what does it mean for us living here in Lake Tahoe. So the death of Jesus ratifies this new covenant. And so we're brought to the story of his resurrection, where Pastor uh, Ron brought us to the death of Jesus. Now we enter the story of his resurrection. So we pick up the story in Matthew 28. The two Marys, they go run to the tomb, and they find an angel who says, the one you're looking for is not here. So they run back, and so on their way back, they encounter Jesus, and Jesus is like, hey, I'm back. And he's like, tell the disciples to come meet me on the top of the mountain of Galilee. And so they all run away, and so all the disciples, they run up to the Mount of Galilee, and Jesus gets there, and he issues an announcement. And he starts with, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, you might be a disciple, and you're like, well, duh. <laughs> I have seen your works. I've been part of the miracles. Why on earth would Jesus start with such an obvious statement? Because something significant happened at the cross. Something so powerful that he leads his first message, his first announcement to the disciples with, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. This is interesting. Follow me here. Do you remember what Satan tempted Jesus with? Something like the, the bread to the stone, right? He tempted him with to throw him off the mountain, uh, the temple wall. Uh, which is actually an invitation to suicide, which is interesting. But he says something really interesting in Luke 4, 6. He says, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whoever I wish. That word there, domain, actually is exousia, which means authority. In other words, the devil is saying, I will give you all authority over the earth, for it has been handed over to me. Well, who handed over it to, to Satan? Clearly not God, right? You can't tempt something with something I gave you. You know, like that doesn't work. Who handed over it to Satan? Man did. What did God say to man in the Garden of Eden? In Genesis 1.28, 
God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, there's that word again, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gives authority to man. And what did man do that authority? He disobeyed and he believed the devil and handed over that authority to Satan. And this is why when we read the scriptures about Satan, he's called the ruler of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. How did he get that? He got that from man. So let me summarize. God establishes and creates all of the world of creation, gives it to man, says, you rule over this. Then man disobeys God, empowers the devil. The devil then takes, in the temptation, Jesus says, I will give all authority for it's been handed over to me. Jesus goes to the cross as a man, defeats the devil as a man, raises from the dead, brings us to the announcement. So Jesus is basically announcing the restoration of authority back to man. So who's the beneficiary of this? When Jesus says, I have been given authority, the beneficiary is man. Well, how does that work? Well, what happens to you when you believe in Jesus? Jesus comes and lives in you. Two of my favorite passages, Revelation 3.20. I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Galatians 2.20. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So when Jesus says, I have been given all authority, where does that authority reside? It resides in Jesus who resides in us. And there are a ton of amazing passages in the Bible about how we unify with Christ. But here's a very, very important detail about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, God's presence was limited to a room in the temple called the Holy of Holies. It was a 30 foot by 30 foot by 30 foot room. The Holy of Holies, and they had the Ark of the Covenant in there, and then the laws and all the rest of the things, and maybe snippets of Aaron's beard in there, I don't know. But it was like a really important place where God's presence dwelt. And one person, once a year, could enter the Holy of Holies. One person, once a year. To make a sacrifice for God's people. Now this was such an intense encounter. The high priest, they would tie a rope around his waist and then put like bells on him so that when he entered... If he was struck dead, they'd have a way to, like, extract his body. Because no one could go back in there for another year. How would you like that job? You're like, this is in case you get struck down. All right, God is entitled. That's good. or perfect. And so that was where God's presence was limited. And there also was this veil, a four-inch woven veil that in the temple separated God's presence, the Holy of Holies, from the rest of the temple. Now, do you remember in the, the crucifixion at the cross, what happened to that veil? 22. Signifying that God's presence would no longer be limited to a room, that now his presence comes into us, and that everybody now can come to God. It's amazing. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that you are the temple of the living God, and God's presence lives within you. So not only is the temple gone, you are a mini temple. You are the carrier of his presence. So when Jesus says, all authority on earth has been given to me, and that he resides in us, it means something very significant about us. 
It means that through the dwelling and the power of the Spirit, we become administrators of God's authority over the earth and continue the works of Jesus. Here's the truth. When you believe in God saved, it didn't just change where you go after you die. It changed how you were supposed to live on earth. In other words, you are not a powerless person. You're not a powerless person who believes in Jesus, who bought the fire insurance, and now after you die, you get to go to heaven. No, that's not what happened. You are a Holy Spirit empowered believer called to impact earth. Jesus is alive and living on this earth, but he's living through you. 1 John 4.17 says that so as he is, so also are we in this world. Sometimes we used to believe that when Jesus said it's finished, it's like he went to heaven and retired. And he's like, that was tough work, and now all the eternity is for me to sit back and relax my cloud. Jesus didn't retire. He's not done in heaven. He's now moving, but now he's moving through us, through the lives of the believers, because the living God is taking residence in us to continue his works on earth. That is what it means to be new covenant people. Not only are our sins forgiven, we get to have eternal life with him, but he lives through us, and we become the move of his hands and feet on earth. Because Jesus didn't have to give us his presence. He didn't have to give us authority. It would have been enough to be saved. It would have been enough to spend eternity with him. But he went the extra step and says, I'm going to empower you. And I'm going to give you authority. And he didn't do that just so we'd feel good about ourselves. Because the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, is not this badge of honor. It's actually this equipping force. There is no reason God would give you authority and power and place His Spirit in you if He didn't have an expectation for your life. So Jesus empowered you to the highest degree so you'd live a powerful life, and this is what it means as we look at what does it mean to be a new covenant people that we're empowered so the works of God can operate through us. And that's why the new covenant people are empowered and have authority. But here's the thing. How is authority measured? How is power and authority measured? It's measured by how it's used. You take someone of great skill, and their skill is measured by how they apply it, what they do with it. A great musician is measured by how well they perform. So likewise, we are measured, the life of a believer is measured by what we do with what we've been given. So Jesus is equipping us. So we have to ask, well, how does he want us to be using that equipment? How does he want us to use that authority? Well, let's go back to the passage. In Matthew 28, it says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, a very important detail in this passage, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've committed to you. It's interesting that Jesus announces what he's accomplished and then gives us an assignment. You see this union here again. He says, all authority has been given to me, now you. We realize that what he accomplished now becomes our equipping. He's drawing the connection that what he has accomplished because he lives in you now empowers you to the fullest extent. It says, go make disciples. And this is what we understand as the Great Commission. And that's our mission. 
And here's how I would define our mission, according to us being empowered, according to having the, the living God dwell in us, according to us being a new people after God's own possession. This is how I define it, is that our mission is to administer the presence and authority of God within our lives to transform people throughout the world. So new covenant people, filled with authority, power, Jesus them transformed. Now you take that presence and authority of God that's in you already, and you use that to impact people throughout the world. Now it begs the question, well, how do we do that? Like, that's great that we're equipped, that's great all those things, but how do we do that? And notice that Jesus used the word make disciples. He didn't say host an event, he said make disciples. It implies transformation. Now brace yourself, because I might ruffle a couple feathers here, um, but bear with me because I'm going to try and clean it up after I ruffle some feathers. The problem is, sometimes we can associate the idea of the Great Commission to primarily just saving souls. It's not just that, it is that, but it's also transforming lives. It's possible to reduce the Great Commission down to holding an event or holding a service and asking people to raise their hands. And we get fixated easily by numbers. I was part of a large church for a number of years, and every single week I have to report numbers. And it's just like really challenging force to be part of a church that like they want mega numbers. And so one of those things is how many hands raised up? And so I get stuck in it, but I realize that the hand raise is not the finish line. The hand raise is the starting gate. That is important to get hands raised, but that is the beginning of a process of transformation. So here we read that. The invitation, it's important, it's required, it's essential. I'm not trying to knock that at all, but it's not the end, it's actually the start. Because you can save a soul and not make a disciple, but you can't make a disciple without saving a soul. And so this notion that we would try to get hands raised and stop there, well, James says, you believe in God? Awesome. Even the demons believe in God. Sure. So we have to embrace that the Great Commission is not trying to win people to believe something. It's actually a call to be in a relationship with them to transform them. And so we should continue to pursue the hands raised, amen, but also we should equally be zealous for the transformation of the life. Now, I hope I didn't offend anybody here because I actually have a lot of experience in this category. I've worked with Luis, the Luis Palau Association and helped them put on events of 500,000 people. We had hundreds, thousands of hands raised. And my job was to create technology for all the hands that went up to find community. That was my job there. And so I'm not trying to discount that. We should continue to hold those events. We should continue to offer invitations. It's required. But let me tell you this, that as a child growing up, I was a professional hand raiser. I'm convinced that when I get to heaven, there's going to be a placard that says, most times life given to Jesus, and it's going to be my name on it. I kid you not, I probably gave my life to Jesus about 50 times. And you have to, because you can network, well, let me just say this. The Left Behind series, the whole notion, great, it terrified me. And just because you're running from hell does not necessarily mean you're running to God. I'll just say that right there. But, you know, I'm terrified. And I had homesickness as a kid, too. So, left behind, put all my triggers in place simultaneously. So, but every opportunity, I mean, Benny Hinn on TV, like, my hand raise would go off for anything. You name it. And I wonder if one of the reasons I was always putting my hand up 
and always raise my hand because I never had someone come along to my wife to make me a disciple. You see, I was eternally secure, but I was unchanged. And because I was unchanged, I wondered if I was eternally secure. So any opportunity is like, well, maybe, maybe there's some defect in how I'm doing this because I'm not experiencing that change yet. And so that's why I kept doing it. And so, but this pattern followed me as I entered ministry, fixated on the impact of hands raised. We just gotta get them to believe and we'll trust God for the rest. And there's a man who discipled me finally later on in my 20s. His name is Dwight Hill. I don't know if anybody here knows him. But he's like, why are you so fixated on the hands raised? It's like to impact the world. Have an impact. He's like, Jesus only worked with 12. He changed the world. I was like, I know about like, but we've got microphones and he had donkeys. Like, it's a different thing for us. <laughs> like, the mandate for the opportunity should be different. He's like, let me give you a math problem. He's like, we'll meet next month. And I want you to do a math problem. You tell me who's got another bigger ministry. So, okay, sounds fair. Not necessarily my strong skill anyways, but I'll take it. He said, let's, let's assume Billy Graham, 365 days a year, keep hitting Billy Graham, 365 days a year, can bring 1,000 people to Christ every day, and he's not going to take a single day off for 25 years. 1,000 people a day, 25 years, every single day. He's like, I want you to consider what would happen if you work with one person and you pour your life into that one person for 12 months. And after that 12 months, that person is equipped and able to lead one other person. Who then after that 12 months can lead another person. And then that person after 12 months can lead another person. He's like, come back and tell me in 25 years who has had a bigger impact for the kingdom. So I went and did the math, and after 25 years of 1,000 people a day, Billy Graham will have reached 9,125,000 people. You, spending 12 months of your life with one person, 25 people total for the rest of your life, will have impacted 16,777,000. Just like, unbelievable. So the hand raise is important. But the long obedience in the same direction of some person to impart has this exponential impact that I believe is what Jesus was talking about. So back to how this is accomplished. Remember, our mission is to administer the authority, the presence of God in our lives, and we're to impact and transform people throughout the world. So that's our mission. So let me ask you, who is the first person that should be transformed? You. The Great Commission starts with the pursuit of the inward transformation. Before we can transform others, we must ourselves be transformed. Because you take that multiplication effect. You're like, I'm going to live my life in such a way that there are going to be millions of people potentially impacted by how I intentionally live the relationship. I better be able to impart something. Because making a disciple is the transformation by transferring what is in you into someone else. How you lead others will give them an example to follow how that exponential impact. And so it's so important about how you pursue your own 
personal transformation because it's going to be the very thing that you impart. And it's going to be the very thing that people assess whether or not they want in their life. So I'm in business. I have a software company. And there's no shortage of wealthy tech entrepreneurs, businessmen who've come alongside me and said, I want to mentor you. I want to like, you know, come alongside you and pull my life into you. Which is like, cool, awesome. That, that's cool. But then I look at their life and I'm like, all right, you're in your fourth marriage. You've claimed bankruptcy multiple times. You're in current litigation. Your children will talk to you. And you're on this wild pursuit of stuff. Thanks, but no thanks. Because if you impart something to me, my life might begin to look like yours. And I don't want my life to look like yours. So we have to be cognizant that this is the same thing in the kingdom. Because Jesus says, as I have taught you, so you teach others. From you into others. And so you will be able to lead people into the areas that you have developed in your life. But you will not be able to lead people in areas you've not developed in your life. You cannot impart something to someone else that you've not cultivated in your own life. Maybe like going skydiving, and then the instructor is like, all right, y'all, like, cool. And you ask him, how many times have you jumped on the airplane? He's like, oh, no, I just watched a few YouTube videos. <laughs> like, I don't think so. I'm not going to do that. You have to know that you will only be able to lead people in the ways that you've walked yourself. The call of our lives is actually to cultivate in us so we have something to impart. This is why Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is why Paul calls Timothy his spiritual son. There's this impartation that follow me. Look to my life as the example. And there's a shortage of, of people who frankly have, have cultivated their life that's worthy of being replicated. As someone who's in his 30s, like it's, there's not a whole lot of people you're looking like, that's the model. That's what I want to do. That's like the example. And so the mandate for the gospel, for us to be the new covenant people, is actually to give a higher standard of living, a higher call, not that where we go on Sundays, but that we have something that can be replicated. So you start by focusing on an inward transformation so that as you work and transform people, they become derivatives of you and what Christ has done. But what else happens when we focus on the inward transformation itself? Is your inward transformation begins to create public demonstrations. When you focus on what God is within you and transforming you on the inside, the work inevitably reaches the outside. You see, a vibrant faith that has transformed you inside is actually impossible from beginning to move outside. That's why when Jesus talks about like caring for the widows and orphans and we see people who are abused and trafficked, like, our heart begins to move. We've, we've cultivated this inward transformation that when the outside opportunities come, we respond. And so vibrant faith on the inside directly translates to how we're going to live on the outside. And that's the result, the expected result of being the new covenant people is that we have such a transformation on the inside that our outward lives will be completely transformed. It causes us to live differently. It causes us to move forward in action. Ephesians 2.10 says this, that for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so we walk in them. Titus 2.14 says, he gave for himself 
He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself the people of his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. So God transforms on the inside, so we transform those on the outside. The new covenant people are marked by how they live and love people and how they give themselves for others for good works. Are you guys okay? Amen? So being the new covenant people is actually really recognizing that you get to be the hands and feet of Jesus to a dying and broken world. We oftentimes, God, would you do this? You encounter a man who is in need, and you're like, God, God, would you provide for him? And then you realize you actually have like a hundred dollars in back pocket. Well, maybe God is like, I, I've actually equipped you to be Jesus to that one person. That we need to be aware that when we pray for somebody, God has already made us the answer. The mandate is for us to be Jesus to them. We shouldn't say, I'm going to pray for you, and maybe somebody else is going to come by and help you. If you've been that one, maybe you are that person that's been designed for that moment to be the breakthrough. And so here's what I've learned in this, is that what is visible on the outside, how I live, is actually proof of what's inside. That you should be able to look at my life, look at um, how I treat my wife, how I, treat, how I treat my kids, how you look at my internet history, should be proof of what is inside. That your words, your actions, your behaviors become a legitimizing proof to those who have yet to believe. James goes so far as saying that faith without action is dead. It's easy for us to do it the opposite way, to do works, you know, in order that we believe. But the, the transformation is the opposite direction. We believe we're transformed, and so therefore our life creates a different outward flow. And I'm convinced that a lot of unbelievers reject God, not because they're like, I don't believe this man Jesus really roamed the earth, is that they do not trust the legitimacy of God in your own life. And so if it's not legitimate in your life, why do be legitimate in my life? At the age of 18, I am um, maybe 17. I am tough. Remember, I wasn't discipled very well. I had a mouth, you think I got from a Navy ship. And I lived a pretty safe life otherwise, but I was really into motocross, I was racing, and just part of that culture, you just like, I was, I could use the F word as a pronoun, adjective, I could, I could use it in every single way and make it make sense, all in one. <laughs> and yet, I was at this event and found, you know, like this little Jesus fish on the back of my, that was evangelism, so he's like a little Jesus fish on the back of something. And someone's like, hey, like, are you a Christian? Because I knew that my mouth had just disproven the transformation that I claimed to have inside. And just like Peter, I denied it three times. It's like, oh, it's just my upbringing. It's just something I've like learned. I don't know. Anyways, how about that jump back? You're going to sit in the third gear, fourth gear. You know, like I would do anything to move it around. And so this powerful life that we cultivate inside gets demonstrated the outside so that when people look at our outside life, they believe what's on the inside. And the disciples have this very same effect. Remember, like, they saw them, like, aren't these the same guys? Like, there's something that is apologetic, that ransoms people's curiosity about God based on how you live, based on what you do. I was driving back one night, I came to Sacramento once a week, and it was like 10 p.m. at night, and I saw car flashers on the side of the road. Passed by, got off the exit to 289, whatever that is. 
I just felt like, oh man, what is that? Like I just felt like this little pink. So I gotta go back there. I go back and there's, you know, some girl, she's probably like 22, trying to figure out how to change her tire. And so I look there, all hell was, I've never changed a tire in my life. <laughs> like, how hard can it be? It ended up being very hard. <laughs> Where does this thing go? Because it hurts. So I do that, and so her tire's like mangled. And so I look around, I look at her other tires, she's got this little donut on. Look at those, there's every other tire totally bald, probably ready to work. 10 p.m., dark, nothing. And earlier that month, I never, I never carry cash. I don't know I never carry cash. But occasionally, I'll have some sort of transaction with cash in my hand. I always put in my truck. I'm like, God, would you open up something for an opportunity? So I had this $300 of cash in my truck. I look at someone who probably has $300 worth of tire bills coming So I change her tire, all those things. I'm like, hey, I want to give you some real quick. I mean, she was just thrilled to get back on the road that, you know, she did not get, like, kidnapped or something on the side of the street. So I come back, shake her hand, I put the $300 in her hand. Like, I want you to know, God told me that there's going to be somebody who needed this. She begins to weep. She's like, why? I like, I just love Jesus. He calls me to live differently. And so all of a sudden, she's like, I, I can't understand. It's like, how, how does that work? It's like, God has been so good to me that I just want to, I want to live a life in such a way that people are impacted. That people, like, believe what's in me. And that's exactly what 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, is that we should live in such a way that people demand for an explanation for the hope that you have. That our outward life gives proof to what's on the inside. But when we live that outward life, it's designed to cause inquiry into how you are the way that you are. The expectation is that what is in us causes us to live differently so that people begin to ask, why, how, tell me about it. Because if it's, it's, if it's proof in you, it might be proof in me. And if we want to have an impactful witness in ministry, we should try to live in ways that when people say, wow, how on earth do you do that? How, why? Like, tell me about this, this is crazy. Because I'm convinced that people have an absence of proof of Jesus' in lives. Proof of transformation. And we have a hard time saying it. It's hard to talk about what I've been saved from and where I've grown from. Those are very vulnerable things to say that God transformed because it implies that you were a wreck before. And we live in this like, social media age, like, hey, everything's good. And so it's very hard to say there's a time where things are really bad. And it's even harder to say things are really bad. And so the world, I believe, needs people who are willing to live a life that shows I'm saved to make a difference in people's lives, to do good on this earth because I've cultivated it in me. And you can ask me about why. So let me summarize. Our life as a new covenant people is not to go to heaven it is to be transformed as God's dwelling place so that we administer the presence and the power and authority of God in our lives to transform people throughout the world. Because Christ is not, I'm retired in heaven, he's living through me right now, you are the hands and feet of Jesus. And in order to fulfill that, we must administer that into the lives of people around the world. And we do that by first focusing on our inward transformation. 
life because as we have a relationship with other people, they pick up the scent, they pick up the wind, they follow your example. And what also happens when we focus on the inward is it creates this outward demonstration of people saying, that is amazing, why are you the way that you are? That opens up us to talk about Christ in us. How are you guys doing? I'm almost out of time. You want to, can I just tell you one more thing? Let me offer a few thoughts as it relates to Lake Tahoe. How do we live as new covenant people here in Lake Tahoe? How does the Great Commission get fulfilled in our lives living here? It's really easy to think about the mission field and the Great Commission being only places that have never heard the name Jesus. It's really easy to think about that. I think, well, one day I'll plan a trip. And there are plenty of places on earth that you can go that still not heard the name of Jesus. We should bring the name of Jesus to every speck of, of dust on the earth. Amen. But just all this past week was talking about mission field. Like, your mission field is wherever your feet are pointing. That's really good. I'm going to steal that. The mission field is not places on earth that have never heard the gospel. The mission field that all of us have is where our feet are pointing. Right now. We need to go someplace. And I believe that not just people who never heard, but the mission field here is people who have heard, but yet not been transformed. Either that they have not believed and been transformed, or they have believed and not been transformed. That is our active mission field. That makes Lake Tahoe this really rich harvest field for people who may have heard the gospel and just said no thanks. Or maybe heard the gospel and walked away. There is no shortage of individuals in this zip code that fit that description. And so I wonder how many of those people said no thanks because they didn't see proof of that transformation on the end of the life of the person. So for us, how do we live the gospel out loud here in Thomas? We need to be a life that shows a persuasive proof of the transformation in us. Because if they don't experience the transformation in your life, they're not going to believe it for their own. And so we need to be aware to share our transformation. And so that, that is our mandate that we would become a compelling example for Christ and the gospel for those who have already heard but not believed. Huge mission field. But here's the thing about Inclined Village is that a lot of people move here to retire and to live a private life. I'm not retired yet. But a lot of people move here and they're like, I'm done with people. I'm going to move to the mountains. You know, there's a lot of that here. None of you, of course. Here's the thing. A private life gets no inquiry. If we're supposed to live in such a way that people demand for the explanation of the way we live, and you're trying to say, I don't want anybody to see the way I live, those two things are kind of incompatible. And so part of living as a new covenant people means that we would live to a degree where our lives are known, not to share our laundry, but to live in such a way that people would have the opportunity to ask about your life. How are you the way you are? You've been married for 40 years. How did that happen? I've been married four days. This is terrible. Like, we need to live in such a way that, that gives enough examples for people to say, whoa, how does that work? Tell me, and what is the best way to do that? The best way 
to get people to ask about your life is you need to ask about their life. It's not like this, this teeter-totter analogy of like conversations like teeter-totters of each take a turn going up and down. And one of the most difficult times in any relationship is you're like, hey, how's your week? It's good. Anything fun happened? Nope. Uh, how's your dog? Died. Um, watch any shows? Nope. Play sports? Nope. I mean, that is a miserable conversation with somebody. Because they don't give you anything to kind of go on. Like, so, conversations with relationship people, good ones, at least have this reciprocal effect. How was your week? It was really good. How was your week? Right? So, if you have an area of your life that you say, I want to impart, I have this, this ability to impart something to somebody else. Maybe you've been married 40 years. And you're like, someone asks, you ask someone, how's your week? And they're like, it's good, I kind of work and do whatever. How's your week? My week was awesome. I celebrated my 40th wedding anniversary. I am so in love with my wife. I'm in more love with my wife now than I first met her at the bar 40 years ago. <laughs> and that should cause you, whoa, you guys met at the bar? Like, you know, you've been married 40 years? Like, tell me about this. You need to give people a platform to be curious about your life. And so you can find these areas that you have strength, you have something to impart. And then, this is sneaky, you ask other people about the same topic. Hey, how do you do financial planning? I'm a financial wreck. How about you? Actually, I'm a financial manager. Ooh, that's kind of interesting. And so that will help you build this connection of conversation for people. And this is especially effective for younger people. Tony asked me to ask um, or comment on how does older people and younger people relate? Well, this is interesting because younger people feel like old people are annoyed with them. And older people feel like they can't relate to younger people. This is true. Here's the thing, is that if you are elder in your years, you have something that younger people really want. A leg up. They want to know, how did you do it? And if I want to do it, are there any shortcuts I can take? Your successful, blessed life is the breadcrumbs that the youth is hungry for. Yes. So whether or not you have a great car, whether or not you have a great home, you have a great boat, these are all assets that you can bless and help younger people in. And then if you make your life available, it's like, how did you do that? How is that? You naturally have this inquiry into your life. Then you're like, wow, well, tell me about this. And if you are free to give it, they will give you not only permission with their mind to be curious about how you've done life, but you also have a natural thing to say, yeah, this is an awesome car, but this doesn't make me who I am. My real identity is in Christ. And if that all this stuff went away, I don't care. And at that point, they should be like, whoa, how, how does that work? And now because you've given them a leg up through some breadcrumbs, you've opened up your life to them, now they're entirely available to trust you to hear about your own life and your own transformation of Jesus. And if you open your life and your experience to younger, younger people, the details of your life will have tremendous influence 